I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. And it was it was a very, you know, lowercase go ACC kind of evening in Wallace Wade. Like, for some reason, they delivered flowers to somebody in the stadium. Um which I thought was really weird because like they weren't in a vase and they weren't in water. And so they'll probably be dead by the time, you know, she gets to her car. Right. Right. You were saying that you feel like that's like you're broken because that's how you, that's where your mind goes when you see flowers be brought to somebody. And I I would be annoyed. Like, I'd be like, what am I going to do with these? I have to bring them to the car. They're going to be dead. Like, what are you doing? You don't know (laughs) if they're going to allow re-entry. Right. Exactly. They definitely won't. I'm going to have to stuff them in my clear bag. Or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and then, like, literally, it was either the, like, media timeout after that or, the or like, one or two later, there was a marriage proposal on the field, too. And, like, that poor guy that got the flowers delivered, you know, somebody yeah. should have warned him. Like, maybe do it another week where You're there's not, not a marriage good. proposal. Not going to yeah. look too good. Yeah. No. Right. And that, that couple ended up, like, making out in the hedges um, right by the Duke Tunnel for, like, a hot minute. Welcome to an ACC podcast. I'm Lauren Brownlow, uh, joined this week by yet another member of Banner Society, um, Alex Kirshner, who I finally got to meet in person along with the members of the Shutdown Fullcast this past Friday when they did a live show in Charlotte. And by the way, first of all, hi, Alex. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. I'm so embarrassed that, like, and I asked you guys after the show, I asked Shutdown guys after the show if this was true, but the first, like, person to almost accost the Shutdown full cast was someone defending the honor of the ACC, question mark? I'm not sure. Not even a specific ACC team, as best I could tell. Maybe Clemson, sort of. No, there's no way it was Clemson. No. it It seemed like he was just defending the ACC as an institution. Which, yes. respect, respect. This, but that's like so not our people. I think I tweeted later that he was like a diet Feinbaum caller because like that's not that's not our ethos. That's not that's not who the ACC is. We're we're, we're self deprecating. We don't do the SEC type thing largely because we can't. But also, it's just not who we are. Um, <laughs> yeah, it would have been an exciting way to go. Um, had things gotten <laughs> physical there, uh, an exciting what, what- way to go. What a way to explain uh, why it is that we all did not make it out of that performance because because oh we God. went to Charlotte and were being too mean to the ACC would have been would have been something. <laughs> yeah, you just made some ACC guy mad. It could have been Clemson, although a Clemson guy behind me when the guy like stood up and was like, "Who won two of the last three national titles?" was like Clemson, and I was like, "Fair point." And that's an achievement for the entire ACC. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Um, it was a it was a pretty light weekend in terms of actual ACC games, but the games themselves largely ended up being pretty fun. Oh, yeah. um, 
I remember the game that uh, Caroline Darney, who I had on on Thursday to preview the week, uh, she she said she might watch if it's on, which for Caroline, if you know her at all, she will watch any ACC content wherever she can get it and was even streaming an ACC soccer game during the shutdown full cast. <laughs> so like she is addicted. But even that game, she was like, I don't know about Boston College Louisville, but it ended up being really fun um, and really entertaining. 80 combined points for those two. Louisville wins at home, 41-39. Um, we've got five total quarterbacks, sort of, seeing time. One was a trick play, I think, for Boston College. But uh, Anthony Brown going out with an injury for Boston College, a quarterback. Malik Cunningham going out for, with an injury for Louisville. So you got to see Evan Conley for a little bit longer than we thought um, at quarterback. It was. It seemed like a pretty fun game. 664 yards for Louisville, 563 for B.C., um, not a hu- whole lot to take away, I don't think, except for if that's a potential last place game in the Atlantic. I guess Louisville has the head to head. Yeah, I, I mean, don't know. It's a shame that we don't have a an ACC draft, and there couldn't have been even higher stakes that game. But it's it's fun. You don't expect a Boston College Louisville game, you know, a post Petrino Louisville game at that uh, to be one where they combine for uh, well over a thousand yards of offense and fifty first downs between them. But that's exactly what they did. So, hey, I mean, no no fun going to be made here. That was impressive. It, it's a good show. I'm still not used to this whole thing where, like, Boston College is being carried by its offense. Like, that's still very strange to me. And it's a big part of the reason, I guess, that they're where they are right now because they don't have much of a defense to speak of. But still, like, and it's a shame Anthony Brown went down because, um, yeah, I mean, look, it's – it's not going to be it's not going to be easy. Nothing will be easy for Boston College this year, but Louisville at least is like more fun to watch and um yeah, I, I don't really know what else to take out of this either like you said. It it just uh Javian Hawkins is really good for Louisville. He's been playing really well. AJ Dillon does not deserve this. No, I think Louisville is notably better and more competent looking than a lot of us myself included expected they would be. And that's a credit to Scott Satterfield who has been good enough to have a job like that for a long time and finally got one. And look at this. They look like a much more professional outfit than they did last year or the year before or in some ways the year before. (laughs) Totally. I actually am so – every time they come out and look like this, I view it as a big middle finger to Bobby Petrino, and that's something that we can all absolutely get behind. So, Unquestionably. (laughs) And they might get bowl eligible. I mean, Louisville, I think, has – Better than a 50% chance at this point, they're three and two of getting bowl eligible. And, you know, their schedule is ugly from this point forward. I mean, I think they're going to be head to head dogs in pretty much every game they play, except maybe a home game against Syracuse. But at the same time, most of them are winnable. I mean, with the exception of Clemson, this is the ACC, uh, and they're all winnable. And Kentucky doesn't have its quarterback and has its own problems in that game at the end of the year. So I think six or seven wins could happen. Interesting. Yeah, I would have never even thought that that was on the table for them yeah, just same. because of, like you said, the schedule. But but you're right. I mean, at this point, maybe Florida State's gotten it together uh, in the Atlantic, although they've already played Florida State, so that's out the window anyway. But, you know, like everybody else, yeah. I mean, NC State hasn't looked all that great. Syracuse certainly hasn't looked all that great. Really, Wake Forest is the only team that's looked pretty good. And um, yeah, I, I, that's it's all on the table for them. So like I have, by the way, this this year is finally like, the manifestation of what I have always said about the rest of the ACC that's not Clemson, which is that it's all the coastal. So like when the Atlantic division teams will complain about like, oh, we can't win our division and it's too hard. Yes, you're right. You can't win it because you got Clemson in it. 
But y'all are all also the coastal. Like you're just in a different division. It's <laughs> they are different. They're definitely different. It's just it's just a different division in name only. But everybody is the coastal. Like Clemson and the coastal should just be. It's a mindset. Yeah. I mean, Pitt Pitt is on the coast of the Monongahela River, if you will. That's true. Um, So Boston College is on the coast of – they got a river in Boston. I always forget what it is, but I know they've got one. like the Charles? Did I make that up? Yeah. Yeah, that might be it. (laughs) I mean, there's – Every, every ACC school's got a river yeah. somewhere in its in its spiritual vicinity. Yeah. It could be coasts. Some sort of body of water. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 that checks out for me. <laughs> Louisville's got that river that separates Louisville and the rest of the state of Ohio from Kentucky. So Yes, you're right. Louisville, Louisville's, in, Louisville's in Ohio. That's that's one of the things that I've decided, I think. And Cincinnati's in Kentucky, and we, we, we just alternate them as necessary. Cincinnati really is in Kentucky, which is not something I realized until at one point, like making the drive to Indianapolis. And I'm like, yeah, this is basically like, this is basically all just one sort of state. Like they're, they're basically Kentucky at this point. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. North. I realized that when I went to a Reds game one time, uh-huh. and they were like, right over there, that's Kentucky. I was like, oh, you mean right over there? <laughs> yeah, like literally. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Uh, North Carolina went to Georgia Tech. That played out about like we all thought. Um, although, you know, I hadn't watched Georgia Tech that closely all year long, really since the Clemson game. And even knowing what their offense was going to look like, it was still kind of jarring to see how bad and disjointed it looks um, playing out on the field. It just, it's just, it's going to be a rough year. We all knew that uh, with Jeff Collins and company, but like, it's not. It just looks as bad as it sounds like it would look. It really does. It looks like a mess. Yeah, it's very bad. I mean, you you knew, like you said, that it was going to take some time to wash out the triple optionness of that program, and to start recruiting uh, for a system where you might be able to get some more players who don't want to be in the triple option uh, as much as we love and respect the triple option. Um, but it's maybe even a little bit worse than I thought. I mean, they're very very bad, and I think it's in play certainly that they would go. I mean, one and eleven is possible, and that would mean no more wins. Um, but two and ten, or one and eleven, I think you're you're looking at at least a fifty percent chance that it's that bad. That it's you know one and one and eleven or two and ten. So um, they've got a lot of work out of them, and they're not going to be able to do most of it, I don't think, until next year. Yeah, it's weird. I I, th- I said to myself that I thought like the later in the year it got, the more you wouldn't want to play them, and I don't. That may still be true. I, I don't know, but. Because, like, the thing is, their defense is not terrible. It's really not. It's just it's on the field all the time. No, their defense is fine. Yeah, their defense their defense is totally fine. Um, but the offense is just – it's every problem that you would imagine you would have when you go from the triple to a more contemporary spread. And then all of those problems being kind of on the worst end of the spectrum from where they could have been. So it just it just doesn't look good. On the Carolina side of things, I mean, they played probably about as poorly as you could for most of the first half and still were up like 14 at the half because they managed to score uh, just before the break. And it was sloppy at times. It really was. Um, And they averaged the same yards per play as Georgia Tech, which I don't really know what to make of that at all, if anything. I mean... Some of that, I think, was late in the game. Georgia Tech just trying to make it interesting and whatever. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't make too much of that fourth quarter scoring burst from Georgia Tech. But, no, no. you know, the fact that Carolina, who is a good team, but not an amazing team, could kind of like fart around for an entire half and still lead by double digits is <laughs> is as 
yeah, it's not it's not great. I think if you're Carolina, you don't want to repeat that. Um, <laughs> but no, no, you don't. But I would say that North Carolina did maybe a better job controlling the game than that yards per play stat, which is a good, generally a good number to, yeah. if, if you're going to pick one number to look at a game, I mean, that's the one that you look at to be like, all right, you know, generally how was the run of play here? North Carolina sustained drives a lot better than Georgia Tech did. I mean, North Carolina was running uh, about eight plays a drive to about four for Georgia Tech. Um, so they did a better job holding the ball for longer. Um, I guess. Yeah. And your yards per play will be less when you do that, um, obviously. Yeah. So, you know, and I think they might have, after some explosive plays, they might have had some short ones thrown in there because um, they did, at least on the on the ground. I mean, I don't think their passing game opened things up much, but they had a couple decent runs. Um, yeah, North Carolina, still still interesting, still, still better than we thought, kind of in the same way that Georgia Tech, um, all the things that you could have imagined there have been on the rough side of where they could have been. I feel like North Carolina, in bulk, things are – you know, if you'd have devised like how well could they have possibly gone for them this year, they're generally going about like that. And that's a credit to to them. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I think like, I have to give you credit for this, by the way. I really do, because you called it. You said you thought North Carolina at the beginning of the year could make a bowl. I thought you were crazy. I really did. Like I, when I heard you say that, um, I was like, wait. There's no way. Like with this schedule, there's just no way. Well, and yeah, the thing is they had good coordinators, which was one of the big reasons that I bought into that. And they had a, a freshman QB who um, was last year's recruiting class nationally. QB wasn't very good, but I always thought Sam Howell um, was one of the better QBs in that class, like maybe a top five QB in that class. And that's kind of bearing itself out so far too. So uh, yeah, I did. I don't know if I was looking as closely at the schedule as I should have been. So that was kind of a reckless, maybe a reckless call on my part. But um, I do think they're going to get bowl eligible. I mean, I think they're going to at least win six. And I think the number where Ryan Nanny would owe me pork would be if they won seven. And I think that's in play. I think it kind of is too. I, like you said about Louisville, like basically every game on their schedule is both like winnable and losable essentially, except for Mercer. Like that's a, so that, that gives them what they'd have four at that point. So they need to have at least two or three more from a pool of teams that includes like NC state and Duke and um, you know, teams that are in state rivals that by the way, they have like a bad streak against in state rivals currently where they have not beaten any in-state FBS team, I think in their last seven or eight tries. Not um, great. So not that would, great. yeah, no, they need to snap that. But assuming they can do that against one of those teams, like then you're just looking for one or two more. And I don't think it's super unreasonable. No. I mean, they, they've got Virginia, Virginia Tech. I mean, none of those teams have looked unbeatable at this point. So no, we'll I mean, they, I think that we'll know if they could do seven, if they beat Virginia Tech, uh, I believe it's two weeks from now. I think they have a buy next week, but Virginia Tech appears to be pretty terrible despite having beaten Miami the other day. And if you can win that game on the road, which I still don't think is easy because I don't think it's ever easy to win in Blacksburg. Um, no, then it shouldn't, shouldn't be anyway. Be, shouldn't <laughs> be. Though a few teams have made it look that way um, in the last year. Um, if they could do that, then yeah, I think seven and fivesville is a very possible destination for that team. So good for them. And they're fun too. I mean, they have some really enjoyable players. Uh, Deami Brown, who's only a sophomore, is like a really dependable receiver for them who can get downfield and run pretty much every route. He's very explosive. Um, 
their running back, Michael Carter, decent. Javante Williams, who comes in behind him, fun player as well. So I like watching. Yeah, them. Sam Howell is fun too, like you were saying, and and it's he's you know he's he's a work in progress, obviously, but he uh, he 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 has something about him that kind of sets him apart. I think like just he does not seem to care at all uh, when anything happens, bad or good. Um, which is a good quality to have, I guess. But, oh, yeah. He also uh, looks kind of like he's like 30 years old. So I think... Yeah, he, he could be like any age between right. like 16... He could play a 16-year-old in a movie. Sure. And we'd go like, that guy's probably pretty old. For sure. He's but, Jason Street <laughs> in the pilot of Friday Night Lights. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they're they're fun. Um, and Georgia Tech, just God bless you. Um, oh, you. speaking of Virginia Tech... Virginia Tech, like that was the most Virginia Tech way to take a 28 nothing lead I've literally ever seen. I think that after that first quarter, they're up 28 nothing and they have like 96 yards. Um, <laughs> largely because like Miami just, oh boy, yeah. Um, interception, 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 fumble. Mm-hmm. That will do it. Um, yeah. And by the way, I'm very sorry to Jaron Williams because apparently if I say I like you as a quarterback, I have put a hex on you. Yeah, I feel bad for him. His offensive line just can't really keep him safe or couldn't really keep him safe. I don't know. I don't know if that will be a, you know, past tense thing going forward. I'm not sure also how many times each individual QB got sacked for Miami in that game, but they got sacked seven times. That's a lot of times to be sacked in your own stadium. Yeah. And, and it's not even the most times they've gotten sacked in a game this year. Jeez, you're right. It's not. <laughs> they they might be. They probably are among the bottom, or if not close to it, in terms of sacks allowed at this point. Carolina had a few sacks against him too. Um, and Virginia Tech, it's not like Virginia Tech was out there sacking people every week. Like that's not what they was happening. They get sacked a ton. Uh, I think they're getting sacked on more than 13 percent of their dropbacks, which is like a, a bottom. <laughs> that's a bottom five rate in all of FBS. Uh, and so they're, they've got, they've got some issues. I would not want to play quarterback for Miami um, this year. I might want to do it socially because it would probably be very fun from like a <laughs> living, living in, in Miami and being the quarterback of Miami thing. But I don't think I would want to be quarterback for the Miami Hurricanes or the Dolphins for that matter this year. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and Kosi Perry uh, back at quarterback. That's not a thing. I don't think I thought I would see this year, considering how well Jaron Williams had played and considering how much uh, drama Nkosi Perry had sort of brought to his time at quarterback there with getting suspended, the social media posts with the money. Um, I know Mark Richt wasn't pleased with him. It didn't seem like Manny Diaz was much more pleased with him because I think Jaron Williams getting the job was a little bit of a surprise to people. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Not just because Tate Martell had transferred in, but also like, wow, he's going to pass Nkosi Perry and Tate Martell. But yeah, that's exactly what has happened and Nkosi Perry comes back in 422 yards four touchdowns one pick I mean it's weird I saw like Cam Underwood from State of the U he was he's been tweeting about and one thing he said was like maybe it's actually better weirdly if Nkosi doesn't start because when he does start he's always played like trash but when he's come in like off the bench he's been weirdly good but that'll probably wear off too over time yeah because I would expect, and Manny Diaz said this after the game, but it just also would track with what makes sense that Jaron Williams still is going to be their quarterback. And I think you should still be, if you're a Miami fan, if you're looking for a reason for optimism, you should still take him as that. Um, he was quite bad against Virginia Tech, but in the other four games he's played this year, um, which have been against drastically varying levels of competition, obviously, he's been pretty good. 
you know, he hung in there against Florida really well in the first game and he got sacked a ton, but um, showed out, didn't throw any picks, was really good in that loss they had in North Carolina. Um, obviously, he was good against Bethune-Cookman. I'm not sure how much you care about that. And the same with Central Central yeah. Michigan. But um, I think there's still more reason to think he's good than to think he's bad. And so Miami should feel probably bad about a lot of things right now, but I'm not sure that their QB is one of them, as long as the offensive line doesn't get him decapitated at some point this season, which is a risk. Yeah, it's definitely a big F for sure at this point. Um, yeah, I, I I hope that works out for them because I, I did like him. I thought he played well, yeah. but that was four of seven, 47 yards, three picks. I mean, none of his passes hit the ground. So it's true. That. True. <laughs> Uh, and Miami still can't run the ball against anybody. And Virginia Tech had not been super great against the run either. But that's just where Miami is right now. Like you said, no O-line. And that's kind of the end of the story. Um, on the Virginia Tech side of things, I I don't know why Hendon Hooker wasn't starting from day one or why he didn't throw a pass in his entire career until the Duke game. Um, because like to me, he's the guy to be running Justin Fuente's offense. And I always thought Ryan Willis wasn't the best fit and he played he played pretty well I mean he three touchdowns no picks 10 of 20 is not amazing but it's fine and then 76 yards on the ground and a touchdown I mean that's that's what Virginia Tech needs it really is yeah it's not his fault not his fault I mean they've they've got myriad issues and giving Miami uh the short fields that led to touchdown drives of like some truly hilarious like yardage numbers like an eight-play, 48-yard touchdown drive, a two-play, 23-yard touchdown drive, a four-play, 20-yard touchdown drive. I mean, like, you know, Virginia Tech has a lot of problems, and their QB play, I I agree with you about Willis and and about Hooker, too. I don't think their QB play is their biggest issue. Um, the, The passing numbers as a whole, obviously, don't look very good, but I think that's because they have, like, a million other issues. It's not, but I, I still think Hooker to me is a better fit to run what Fuente wants to do. And why do you think so? Just, I, I think I agree. But I'm yeah, sure. I mean Ryan Willis is has some mobility, so because I know that's what people always go to. But I think like I think Hooker is just more of a dynamic rushing threat than Willis is going to be. I feel like Willis rushes as a last resort, whereas like you can do more design stuff with with Hooker, and that's it's a more dangerous option on the run. I don't think you mind Ryan Willis running to beat you, whereas Hooker, I think you have to account for a little bit more. Um, in that area of things. And if Willis is going to be the better passer, he has to have a higher completion percentage and be more careful with the ball. And that just hasn't happened either. So it's like he's not doing enough to offset the fact that he's not as dangerous a runner as Hooker is to me. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, but I get it. If you're Fuente, like you have to go with the safer choice. I just, I don't know how you get this far with your backup quarterback having only attempted like two passes as to this point. <laughs> like just, I mean, put him in there in any game, yeah. literally just give him a series, you know? I mean, that's something, by the way, that's something that Louisville did with Conley before Malik Cunningham even got hurt. Like they put him in there for a series against Boston College just to get him comfortable. I mean, you have to do stuff like that. I feel like in college football nowadays, you have to have your backup at least somewhat prepared to get into a football game at some point in time and having thrown a pass is ideal. It would be good. Uh, Yeah. So I just realized that I also flipped who was giving up the short field touchdown drives. I think Virginia tech was scoring them, not giving them up. Although to be fair, like, yeah, they ended up giving, you know, but, 
but yes. But anyway, there in the second in the second half, uh, Virginia Tech had a number of very similar problems of its own, um, giving up you know not drives nearly that short to Miami, but they gave up short fields where they gave up touchdown drives of like 61, 65 yards where they you know let Miami kind of flip the field on them, and then they gave up these drives. But um, yeah, not great, not great overall. But I should I should say that it was uh, it was it was Virginia Tech that built the big lead. Uh, based on a bunch of turnovers, and we knew that, but we have we sometimes have a hard time reading drive chat, uh, drive drive charts. Yeah, while we're talking about it, yeah, it was um, it was like the most. It really was a very ACC weekend of football, especially because like there was one second put back on the clock after we thought there wasn't one second put back on the clock, and ESPN had literally already gone to Georgia Tennessee. And, yes. and we were all sitting yes. there. I was in the Wallace Wade press box and I'm like, we were all like, wait, what? Because I'm following Twitter and they're like, we get one more second here in Miami. And I'm like, where? They already went to another game. We're not going to get to see this. So, um, but it didn't matter. Um, and yeah, th- it was funny. Somebody in the press box was also said out loud. They were like, who has to feel worse if they lose this game? And I was literally like, yes, because no one should feel good about the way that that transpired really um justin fuente has to just feel intense relief and that's probably about it like there's not much joy to be had there um it sounds stupid to say i think miami can take something from the fact that they fought back um that's something that i think had the situations been flipped virginia tech would not have done based on what we've seen this season so um you know, I think Virginia Tech might have laid down a little bit we saw it last week the week before against duke like that, that's what happened and miami didn't do that so some credit there, <laughs> you know, for, for fighting back. And I like the way they, I like Manny Diaz. I like the way they're playing, but like you said, that, that O-line just means they're going to have a lot of issues. And Virginia tech, I would say right now, by the way, is one of, it's been one of the most interesting teams for me to watch all year because they've got this bowl streak. I forget how many years it is, but it's the longest active bowl. It's streak. the longest. Yeah. And you know, it's an, obviously it's in significant danger this year. And if they get to six and six, then they actually, according to the letter of the law, should not be eligible for a bowl because two of those wins presumably are going to be FCS wins because they play both both Furman and Rhode yes, Island. Yes, that's right. Um, that situation, that scenario, is very much in play right now um, because they should beat Rhode Island this upcoming week, and then after that, um, they are looking at games that they will probably be underdogs in every week except uh, Georgia Tech, who we've talked about having troubles for obvious reasons. So I think that. Um, seeing how that chaos scenario works out with Virginia Tech and whether they can get to seven wins and actually make a bowl the old-fashioned way and not rely on a waiver from the NCAA will be one of the, uh, relatively speaking, most interesting subplots uh, of the ACC for the rest of the year. Yeah, you're right. I had forgotten about the fact that like they could get an exemption, basically, or whatever. Yeah, like a under 500 team. Oh yeah, there are no rules. Nothing matters in this in this world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd forgotten about that because I was thinking the same thing as you. Like, yes, they'll get a win over Rhode Island, but that won't count. So they're going to have to figure out a way to get uh, probably seven, but they might not. So <laughs> they might not have to get seven at all. So we'll see. Um, yeah, they'll be they'll be interesting to watch. I, I never know what to do with them because it's like you keep thinking they'll get it together and they just don't. So we'll see. Justin Fuente needs this year to go better for sure. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. 
And that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Um, and like I said, I was watching the end of that game in the Wallace Wade press box, which means I got to experience whatever you want to call happened in that Duke pit game in person. That was really, it was really something. Um, I have like a bad history with Duke right off the bat, as opposed to like the last few years, basically whenever Duke has been in this position to like, okay, they've won a few games, you know, they look pretty good. Maybe they're ranked or on the cusp of being ranked or whatever it is. And then a coastal division team X comes into Wallace Wade and they put on a disappointing performance and get, blown out usually is the case and that's what I thought we were witnessing yet again with Pittsburgh and uh, I was on its way to doing that and then Pittsburgh uh, you know (laughs) I guess did what Pittsburgh does really which is be very uncomfortable with a large lead of any kind I guess (laughs) yes yeah I mean Pitt doesn't want to get too high Uh, you can't you can't have that Uh, but people I think at some point are going to have to learn that Pitt's MO uh, is not to just play a great game where things go well the whole time and they, you know, walk out feeling great about their performance and they win. No, that's not how Pitt is going to do it. When Pitt wins a game, it's going to spend much of that game looking just horrible, feeling bad about itself, uh, struggling perhaps with a team that is much worse than it. Um, and or in the case of like a UCF, letting a better team that they were beating get back into the game. But then Pitt is going to fall ass backwards into victory um, or not. But there's a great chance that they will. And that's what happened to Duke. Those poor, those poor suckers at Duke. <laughs> See, I was I was feeling like Duke's MO was going to be more powerful, which, like I said, was just to sort of like have a coastal division team come in when they're playing well. And then Duke put up an egg at home because that's kind of what they've been doing. They play better on the road than they do at home, which is super weird, I guess. But yeah. it's not like the Wallace Wade atmosphere is super intimidating, I suppose, for the visiting team. So there's that. But um, sure. <laughs> and it was it was a very, you know, lowercase go ACC kind of evening in Wallace Wade. Like for some reason, they delivered flowers to somebody in the stadium, um, which I thought was really weird because like they weren't in a vase and they weren't in water. And so they'll probably be dead yeah. by the time, you know, she gets to her car. She, like, right. Right. You were saying that you feel like that's br- like you're broken because that's how you, that's where your mind goes when you see flowers be brought to somebody. I, and I, but I would be annoyed. Like, I'd be like, what yeah. am I going to do with these? I have to bring them to the car. They're going to be dead. Like, what are you doing? You don't know if they're <laughs> going to allow re-entry. Right. Exactly. Right. They definitely won't. I'm going to have to stuff them in my clear bag or whatever it is. Um, and then like literally it was either the like media timeout after that or the, or like one or two later, there was a marriage proposal on the field too. And like that poor guy that got the flowers delivered, you know, somebody should have warned him, like maybe do it another week where there's not a marriage proposal. Not going to look too good. Yeah. No. Right. And that, that couple ended up like making out in the hedges, um, right by the Duke tunnel for like a hot minute. Um, did you keep eyes? Was, did we keep eyes on on what happened with the flower people afterward? We did not. No, okay. we did. We we did not keep eyes um, on yep. them. But hopefully, they made it safely to a car and into some water. Um, yeah, because that probably costed. Well, maybe somebody won the opportunity to do that. That's possible. Like, oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, I hope they didn't have to pay extra for that. 
Um, <laughs> but it had, I mean, this game really did have everything. Like the officiating was, you know, not great. <laughs> Just all, all across the board. It was not very good. Um, and Pitt had 15 penalties for 145 yards. That is. Is that all? Is that all? I know it. it like yeah. you say that, but it did feel like more. <laughs> it, it, it felt like it was a flag every single play. It really did. And it was like. And it was a big flag. It wasn't like an, an ineligible man downfield no. flag. It was it was like a uh, targeting slash unsportsmanlike conduct. Slash, slash like personal foul or roughing the right. passer or whatever. It was always. Yes. It was go big or go home for Pitt, really. Um, and that's that fits with their ethos. Also, speaking of go big or go home for Pitt, they had obviously, I, I, I assume many of our, our listeners today probably watched this game, but Pitt capitalized on some short fields. They had a defensive touchdown. Um, at one point, after Pitt had a 16-play, 68-yard drive, that ended in a pick. Uh, and then the next drive had an 8-play, 25-yard drive um, after, I believe, a big punt return. Um, they had their next bunch of drives in that game went for 19 yards, 42 yards, 25 yards, 7, 8, negative 15, negative 1, 13, 17, 10, 9 yards. Their offense absolutely fell off a cliff for the entire second half. And then they finally fall behind, like they complete their collapse, and they go four plays, 82 yards, 47 seconds to win the game. Incredible. And the thing is, like, I don't think Duke, in fact, I know that I'm pretty sure they weren't. Like, Duke didn't go, like, prevent. That's not what happened. No, Duke was trying to like win the game. Yeah, they were blitzing and, you know, they just yeah. caught him in some matchups. And that's, by the way, like for people yeah. who say that, like that's part of why some teams do play pre- prevent defense because they want to make sure they don't allow the big play. But I think they were right to make that move because Pitt's offense looked really shook. And like there was no way, you know, if you brought pressure, um, you didn't want him to get comfortable. But it didn't matter because Pitt is just, you know, they make no sense. Um, it, mm-hmm. it looked like um, it looked like Duke had tied it a little earlier when they went for two. Um, and they initially said it was good, although that was another weird thing. Basically, what happened was the ref, the same ref, by the way, as I found out later, he called it no good because, like, initially his forward progress was stopped and he didn't get in. Um, mm-hmm. And then they sort of pushed him in. And that same ref didn't blow his whistle when he had called it no good and then just decided, you know what, I'm going to call it good. <laughs> And we yeah. we literally make it through the entire commercial break and everything. And like Duke's about to kick off thinking they tied the game. And all of a sudden the ref comes back on the mic and he's like, uh, we had an inadvertent signal, which means we will have to replay the try. Right. AKA we don't want to make a decision here and we are going to have a do-over. Um <laughs> Mitchell Northam up in the press box uh, covers Pitt. He was hanging out and he he actually looked up the meaning of the word inadvertent. Um, not resulting from or achieved through deliberate planning. And as he said, that both summed up the ref signal and the game itself, really. Yeah. Can, can every can every signal an ACC ref ever makes be considered an inadvertent signal by that, by that judgment? I was wondering, right? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but that was that I've never seen that before. Honestly, it makes sense. I mean, if, if you're a pit defender and you see the guy signal no good, you know, yeah. you're going to stop. So it was yeah. like the outcome itself was fine. It was just more like the fact that they let it get there, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think Duke was just as surprised as everybody else of like, wait. And I want to say that Pitt, by the way, has for the first time, I mean, this is, I think, Pat Narduzzi's fifth year at Pitt. 
and maybe it's his sixth, but I think it's his fifth. And they hired him for Michigan State where he was defensive coordinator. And the whole game there was like, we want to have a Patner Ducey defense that actually can stop people. And they didn't look great for much of the second half against Duke. Um, but this is an extremely Narduzzi defense. It is. It's 15th, 15th right now in SP+. Um, the secondary gets gashed for some horrible big plays because they play um, – Pat Narduzzi doesn't, doesn't really believe in safeties, so he's just going <laughs> to you know, play man-to-man with occasional safety help and blitz the hell out of you. And what's Pitt doing? They're giving up some big plays, but they, they rate tremendously in all the passing efficiency defense stats and in sacks. Uh, so – Pitt finally has a good defense. I think Pat Narduzzi finally has the, you know, kind of look that he wants on that side of the ball. He finally has the DBs who can make it work for him. And Pitt is, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a Pittsburgh guy. I'm a Yinzer myself. Um, <laughs> I think Pitt's probably going seven and five, and or you know, at least at least seven and five. I think eight and four is is a decent possibility as well. And uh, that is better than I thought, and than a lot of people thought. So good for Pitt. Yeah, they. I, I've been saying that all year too about Pitt. Like they just look really good defensively. This is finally the Pat Narduzzi defense that he's wanted to have. And I, I was saying this as well to my Duke people who were freaking out a little bit about Quentin Harris, especially in the first half. I was like, look, against. I think that they're like 24th in yards per play, I want to say Pitt is given up. They were at least going into that game and Alabama was right around the same spot. And so that's the thing. When they play defenses like that, they're probably going to struggle. So they may struggle again against, like, say, Virginia. But Mm -hmm. against almost anybody else that Duke's going to see, I think you'll probably see the Quentin Harris that's maybe a little bit closer to the one we saw against, like, Middle Tennessee State, against, like, Virginia Tech. Um, You know, like, it's it's not – it's okay for him to struggle against – um, a defense like Pitts or a defense like Alabama's, which is not a sentence I can even believe that I'm saying, but um, <laughs> you know, it's I don't know that we have to take a whole lot away from Quentin Harris's performance in this game. Um, Duke was able to scheme around him a lot against other teams and just wasn't able to do that against against Pitt. I mean, it's just the way it is. Um, and I didn't see a lot of yeah. option, I feel like, until the second half for Duke, but um, yeah, Duke definitely made changes. Uh, I, I don't even know if it was even at halftime. It might have been in like sometime in the third quarter, but they probably talked it over at halftime. They were definitely a little more dynamic in what they were trying to do in the second half and trying to be pit with misdirection. And it worked to a to a significant degree. So there was a weird chippiness at play too. Um, even before the game, they like fought, which uh-huh. not to like play too much into some of the Duke stereotypes, but that's not a team that you see often get put out of itself mentally at all. Um, You don't see that a lot from Duke. And I think whatever was going on between these two teams, like Maurice French was getting into it with some guys and like, just there was a lot of like post whistle stuff happening. And I don't know if there's a story there or not. Like, I don't, (laughs) I don't know like what was going on. Cause it's not like you think of like Pitt and Duke as bitter blood rivals or anything, but that was, well, that's just a couple of ACC historic programs going at it. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I was puzzled by it, but it was it was definitely interesting to watch play out. I think Pitt was in Duke's head a little bit at the beginning of the game, especially. I mean, Duke's defense was making a lot of mistakes that you don't normally see them make. And they were the same types of mistakes that Pitt was making in the second half, really, like those post-whistle, you know, personal fouls and whatnot. But you just don't see Duke's defense doing as much or pass interference or whatever it is. And 
that's sort of what they were doing. And they settled down a little bit in the second half, but it was weird to see them get out of themselves, I guess. Um, and I don't know. I don't know. It's a weird, it's a weird phenomenon. I feel like this team's sort of taken on Pat Narduzzi's personality in that, like, you just, they're a little bit, um, what's the word I want to use? Angry? Is that accurate? Like, Oh yeah. They, they have definite angry vibes around them. And like Paris Ford was a good example. Yes. The other night oh my he God. Gets thrown out. He gets thrown out on what I thought was a pretty suspect targeting yeah. call because I thought the Duke receiver dropped his head right into his shoulder as the hit was coming. I, I, I generally lean on the side of caution with targeting calls. I think you, it's, if a few people get thrown out that shouldn't, that's better than a system where you have, you know, unpunished blows to the head all the time. But, um, I thought the call in Paris for it was soft, and he was mad. I mean, he yes. he was mad enough that he almost got 15 more for Pitt uh, when he was being escorted off the field. Um, and Narduzzi was just as mad, and I thought he was going to get you know his own unsportsmanlike. It didn't happen. Um, they were kind of daring the officiating crew to do it, and they didn't do it. There's been a number of times in Narduzzi's Pitt career that I have thought he's going to get one of those because <laughs> he's like – I've always thought that Narduzzi might be the guy to get two unsportsman likes and get, get run, but it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> oh. And they, they put that rule in a few years ago that you could do it. And he's he's a candidate, as is like Will Muschamp. Yes. As is Harbaugh. Like there are a few of these guys who are definite candidates for that, but it hasn't happened yet. We're waiting very excitedly for the day that it does. Yeah, I think it's going to. I would put my money on Pat if I had to. I really, really would. Um, Yeah, that's that. It was a pretty wild weekend. I don't know that we have to take a whole lot from it from Duke's perspective. Um, Good win for Pitt. They kind of needed it. Um, And now you've sort of got a situation in the Coastal where we all just sort of throw our hands up and go, okay, I guess we don't really understand anything anymore. Virginia is holding serve so far, but like, and I, I, you know, no no offense to my Virginia people. I know I say I've said this before and I don't mean, I'm not saying this to pick on you. In fact, I hope it's a reverse jinx for y'all's sake, but like as bad as Virginia Tech has looked, I I think we're not going to count on anything in terms of Virginia beating Virginia Tech until we see it happen. So until well after we see it happen, (laughs) I'm going to need like two hours to go by before I'm like, okay, they're not coming back out for like an untimed down or something. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, like they're on top of the coastal right now. North Carolina is right there as well at two and one. Um, it's, it's a big old shoulder shrug, man. Like that's, that's what it is. And frankly, you look at the rest of the Atlantic, maybe outside of like Wake Forest and potentially Florida state, if they get it together. And I think it's kind of the same deal. Like there's just a whole lot of shoulder shrugging going on right now. I don't know who's good. I don't know what they're going to do. Um, mm-hmm. Pitt put itself yeah. a decent enough position though, I think by getting that head to head over Duke and, you know, we'll see. I guess maybe we will. See. Maybe they will yeah. repeat history and go back to the. Maybe the thing is, Virginia having that head-to-head on Pitt is going to make it really, really tough for Pitt. But you know what? I mean, like you said, we we don't count on Virginia football too far in advance, so we'll see. But really, only in regards uh, to Virginia Tech. Like, I want to make that clear because Bronco Mendenhall has like sure. done some really nice things. They have really done a good job against the North Carolina schools as well, especially the last couple of years. Um, yeah, I mean, he's, he has made Dan, he flummoxed Daniel Jones for th- three years. Like, yeah, I, but, and, and we should note that if, if, if I'm not being snarky and I'm just looking at the way their schedule shapes up, they're probably, they're probably not going to go 11 and one or 10 and two, but they absolutely could. If you just look at what's left on that schedule, that's my at Miami, 
which is next That's week. That's a big and, one for them, you know, yeah. I think that the computers will say that Miami is likely to win that game, but I'm really not sure. I think Virginia is clearly a better team. Um, Duke at Louisville, at UNC, Georgia Tech, Liberty, Virginia Tech. The last three of those, ga- those games are all at home. Um, it'd be pretty surprising if there weren't at least nine wins on that schedule, and I think 10 is is right there. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're good. I mean, you know, we'll see, again, that Virginia Tech, the computers are going to say they're going to win, and uh, many of us know better than to be sure about that. But, um, yeah, they're, they're very good, and, and they – you know, this this could be their kind of dream season that they've been waiting for. Yeah, no, I agree. And I'm, I I think that they're in the driver's seat right now, but Lord knows in the coastal that never really means much of anything, right? So, um, <laughs> all right. Well, that's been the recap of this week. Um, just so everybody knows, I am going to London tomorrow night. So I will not be doing this podcast. Somebody might be doing it. Um, I don't think Caroline Darney has decided. She was thinking about it. Um, So no podcast on Thursday, no podcast the following Tuesday, but I plan on being back Thursday. Um, And yeah, I'm going to watch my Panthers. uh, Who knows what my Panthers will do in London against the Bucks? I don't know anymore. Um, Have a great time. Yeah, I'm really excited. Thank you. Um, I'm excited, but I just wanted to let everybody know that so they're not like, where's your podcast? Um, But all right, Um, Alex Kirshner, Banner Society, where could everybody find you? Uh, I tweet, uh, uh, my name is Alex underscore K-I-R-S-H-N-E-R. Um, and we do the same at Banner Society. We also have a Reddit page uh, and various uh, podcasts uh, that you can listen to along with this great podcast. Those are the Shutdown Fullcast and Podcast Ain't Played Nobody. And an enjoyable Slack as well on game days that I... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> please join the game day Slack. It's a lot of fun. I enjoy it. All right, Alex. Thanks so much.